0: everybody, to UConn 360, the only podcast on the planet that covers the University of Connecticut from every conceivable angle. I'm Julie Bartuka, filling in for Tom Breen this week as your facilitator of sorts on this, our 41st episode. I'm here with my co-host, Ken Best.
1: We're both here today.
0: We That's are, great. unlike Tom, who's out enjoying some kind of, you know, grindcore festival, maybe. We well, don't know. if they
1: have those sorts of things at the beach. <laughs>
0: He's having a lot of fun. As always, we have a great episode for you. And since Tom's not here, we've got some supersized segments and lots of history in store. But before we get to that, let's get into some Husky headlines. Ken?
1: I was at a reception last week for the Yukon Humanities Institute, which has received a $275,000 grant from the Henry Luce Foundation to support a new exhibition and series of programming titled Seeing Truth, Art, Science, and Making Knowledge, 1750-2023. to The exhibition will be presented at the William Benton Museum of Art, our former location Mm -hmm. for recording, during the 2023 academic year, and the programming for the exhibit will be developed in collaboration with the American Museum of Natural History, which is going to loan objects from its collection. Super cool. And eventually, this is going to be a traveling exhibition. Seeing Truth will bring together scientific instruments, photographs, educational props, textbooks, paintings, taxidermy, expedition materials and maps, all kinds of neat stuff to look at. The exhibit will challenge the notions of what counts as scientific as an object or art. Hmm. which will in turn challenge the assumption that there's only one way to understand and value truth and knowledge. This is part of a larger initiative being launched by the Humanities Institute titled The Future of Truth.
0: So cool. And 2023 sounds like a long way off, but it's really not. No, 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 no. Crazy. And it is now 2019 and school is back in session. This year, we have a record high number of about 24,200 undergraduates attending UConn, including yet another incredible freshman class numbering 5,450 across all of our campuses. The class of 2023 brings a wealth of academic talent, high aspirations, and unprecedented diversity. About 77% of this year's freshmen originate from Connecticut, hailing from 162 of the state's 169 towns and cities. Out-of-state freshmen come from 28 other states, 2 U.S. territories, and 35 countries. This class is also one of the most academically accomplished in recent history. It includes 176 valedictorians and salutatorians, more than double the number we had 10 years ago, and the average SAT score for the class is 1296. On top of that, it's the most diverse class in UConn history with 41% students of color among the incoming freshmen who are here at stores. And over in Farmington, we just welcomed the largest incoming class in UConn health history with 110 new medical students and 54 new dental students. And we hope all UConn students and, of course, faculty and staff have an excellent academic year ahead. In other university news, alumnus Dan Toscano, class of 1987, has been named the next Board of Trustees chairman. Toscano is managing director of Global Leveraged Finance at Morgan Stanley. He's an avid UConn supporter and has served on the Foundation's Board of Directors for the past 11 years. Governor Ned Lamont also appointed Scott Cowan, President Emeritus of Tulane University, as a new member of the board, and reappointed current board members Charles Bonnell, Andy Bissett, Sherry Cantor, and Andrea Dennis-Levine. So, perhaps fittingly, with our resident history buff out this week, we've kind of overcorrected and gone all history, all the time. Well, we, for we like history. Episode. We do. We love history. It's fun. Ken, we were just talking about stores in 2019 and 2023. You're taking us a long way back to 19th century Appalachia.
1: Actually, Professor Emeritus Altina Waller is taking us back. Oh, thank you. The most famous family conflict in American history is the Hatfields and the McCoys feud, which took place, as you said, in the 19th century near the border between Kentucky and West Virginia. And one of the first comprehensive books about the Hatfields and the McCoys was written by Professor Waller, who is prominently featured in a new episode of the PBS documentary series American Experience titled The Feud. Her book is... Feud, Hatfields, McCoys, and Social Change in Appalachia, 1860 to 1900. The program will premiere nationally on September 10th at 9 p.m., including on Connecticut Public Television. Now, most people think of the Hatfields and the McCoys feud as a tale about two warring families, but it's really the story of how industrialization jolted the Appalachian region from a mountain farming community into a coal and timber-producing workplace pretty much run by outsiders, from other parts of the country. Uh, while the families led by Anderson Hatfield, who is known as Devilance, and Randolph McCoy, he was called Rannell, were the key players in this particular story, Professor Waller says the backstory of the feud represents a larger part of American history. things you say right up front is you think this is an American story more than anything else. Why do you think that?
2: Well, I think the Hatfield-McCoy story tells us a lot about American history. For such a long time, it's been regarded as an aberrant event that happened in a strange place. When I started to do the research, which is more than 30 years ago, it was really interesting to see the um, confluence between these supposed events of shooting and hillbilly activity and violence with the coming of the railroad and logging. In other words, the coming of capitalism to Appalachia was what really precipitated all this violence and led to this feud. What I was interested in is the ways in which capitalism impacts local communities. And I had seen some of this before because I originally studied New England. And studying New England during the early part of the 19th century, when capitalism was emerging in New England, I saw a lot of parallels in Appalachia. The difference is that in Appalachia it came much more suddenly. So that's why I think it tells us this, this feud, although it seems to be an anomaly in American history, is actually a story story about economic development and social change.
1: Who were the Hatfields and the McCoys, and how did this get going?
2: Well, when I started my research, it was interesting. I wasn't even sure if it was a real event or if it was a legend, because it is so famous. So when I went to Appalachia, to West Virginia University to teach, I wanted to do some local history there. And I thought, well, if that really happened, if that was a real event, that's what I want to look at. So I found out that yes, There was an event which sparked all the publicity and so forth, and there really wasn't much published on it in historical terms. So as a professional historian, I said, okay, this really looks very interesting. So what I found out about the way it started was that Appalachia was a very rural community, which had not been included in the economic development, which had started in the early 19th century. And the first sign of the development that was to come was the logging industry, because the rest of America needed logs, needed building supplies, and Appalachia had trees. So suddenly the price of land was increased. And this led to some rather interesting conflicts between the local community. Even though people owned it and had deeds to it, they used each other's land without much problem. But when it became much more valuable, then it became an issue. Both the Hatfields and McCoys were involved in logging trees. This was small-scale, laid log trees. They floated them down the river and were paid for them. But it caused conflict as to who was logging on whose property. And that conflict led to some of the first events of the feud. Some people always have attributed that it was the Civil War. My argument is that nothing happened in what we know of as feud events, until 13 years after the Civil War. So that suggests that really the community had dealt with the Civil War they were trying to rebuild, and those animosities were fading. I think certainly the influence of the Civil War in terms of there being so much violence, especially in frontier areas, and especially in some of these family units, was true, but it wasn't the primary cause of this animosity. The primary cause came when the price of land went up because of logging.
1: The incident, however, that's attributed through the documented information on American experience and throughout some of the books, the 17 books that have been written about this and and all the films and whatnot was on Election Day 1882 in Kentucky when there was a fight between uh, one of Anderson Hatfield's brothers and three of Randolph McCoy's sons. Eventually, three of the sons were were killed, really executed from that, and then several years later, two of Anderson Hatfield's sons were a part of a posse that surrounded Randolph McCoy's cabin, trying to get to him. Two of his children were killed, and his wife was severely injured, and that seemed to explode the entire situation.
2: Yes, the 1882 Election Day fight was probably the real beginning, although Some people have argued, no, it was a fight over a pig that happened four years earlier. But really, when we see the feud explode, it's in this 1882 election. If you look at what had happened just before that, you begin to see the connection between the economic development of the Tug River Valley and the feud. Because Randolph McCoy had been involved in a logging operation with his father, and they had failed miserably because they had logged trees on someone else's land, They'd been sued. Randall McCoy, who was known as the chief of the McCoys, although I'm not sure that's entirely accurate, lost land. He, that, it made him very poor. It made the McCoy family poor, essentially, because they had to sell their land to pay off the person they lost the case to. So they had had a very bad experience, and Randolph McCoy was, understandably in a way, known as someone who was very resentful and very bitter about what had happened to him and he constantly talked about it and to his children. When that election day came along several of his sons who were grown young men, early 20s, they were tenant farmers, they were not doing well economically. So here they were on the election ground with Anderson Hatfield's sons and Anderson Hatfield was not there that day, neither was Randolph McCoy. In fact the two never really met, that's a myth about the feud. Anderson Hatfield had formed a logging company, and he had been extremely successful. He had employed many of the young men who were in a hopeless economic situation of getting land to be farmers. So he had provided them with land, not only his own children, but other people that he employed. And there was a lot of loyalty to him. So he was seen as a very successful businessman. His children were also at this 1882 election. Uh, And People say, well, why were they in Kentucky? Because they were West Virginia. And I have to remind people that the Tug River Valley was divided by a very artificial boundary between Kentucky and West Virginia. They considered themselves one community. The Tug River connected the community. This election day, Randolph's son, Tolbert, who had been the most angry and bitter, actually started a fight with a Hatfield, but not one of Anderson Hatfield's relatives, but a completely different Hatfield family, And one must remember parenthetically in the Tug Valley that McCoys and Hatfields were names like Smith and Jones. They were everywhere. So he was harassing this particular Hatfield when one of Devil Ants' sons intervened, trying to make peace. Well, this just angered Tolbert even more. He attacked Ellison Hatfield. Ellison was unarmed, and they fought. And then two of Tolbert's brothers joined the fight with knives, stabbing Ellison rather dramatically. He picked up a rock to try to defend himself, and he was fatally wounded. He didn't die right away. What I would suggest is that this has always been portrayed as just hillbillies drinking and fighting. Then it caused this animosity between the families. Well, no, it was not that simple. It had much more to do with their competition over the, the industrial development, which at that point was pretty much the logging industry.
1: So this complex situation really is about the extension of commerce into parts of the country that didn't have very much success. And in fact, what was going on with the industrialization of the United States at that time when industry was spreading and everything in society was really changing.
2: Yes, the industrialization began in the 1830s and 40s in New England and was spreading, and it had both positive and negative effects for just about everyone involved. But to arrive in the post-Civil War era when industrialization really rapidly progressed, extremely rapidly, and the lumbering industry went everywhere, cutting trees to build things, this was what the first impact on the Appalachian region. It wouldn't be the last. It was only kind of the beginning of what was going on because the next thing would be railroads and coal.
1: And that also played a significant role in some of the escalation in some of the situations between the two families with a peripheral influence from another major player in that region as well who was involved with the railroads and in fact with politics.
2: Yes. And that involves the feud being translated into something entirely different than it was originally. After the Election Day fight, Ellison Hatfield died two days later, and his father, known as Devil Lance, made it pretty clear that he was not going to allow this to go unpunished. And in that way, he was speaking to the mores of the community, because this fight was extremely unfair in the eyes of the community. Ellison Hatfield wasn't armed. He was a very strong, big man, but he was unarmed. And he was attacked by three McCoys with knives and guns. So when Devil Lance announced to the world and to the three boys that he took prisoner, essentially, that if Ellison lived, he would let them go. If Ellison died, they would die. And he carried out that threat. And it's interesting that he took this form, because what we know about Devil Lance is that previous to this, when he felt like something was unjust He usually went to court. He didn't get out his gun. It's interesting that in this case, he felt like he couldn't depend on the justice system because this event had happened in Kentucky. And if the boys were taken to Pikeville, Kentucky, they would really not get a fair trial. That was his rationale. But I think the point of that is that most people thought, although they were horrified, and I really have to say that, this was not a normal event. They were upset with Devalance's behavior, but they thought, it's a justice in a way. So there it lay for five years. The community had decided basically to let it go. Five years later, the feud was revived. Most of the violence that we attribute to the feud came about in that second phase.
1: And this takes in the form of two of Devalance, Hatfield sons, going to Randolph McCoy's cabin. And he's known as Randall, trying to, to get to him and to kill him. There's a gunfight. That doesn't do so well, so they set fire to the cabin, and he escapes, but two of his children die, and his wife is severely injured, and that becomes the core of of the explosion from from that point forward.
2: The cabin burning incident really is the point where it becomes a a national issue. It hits the New York Times and the press all over the country.
1: This story is, is centuries old now. What makes it current for a national documentary through a series that looks back at history and interprets it sort of into better understanding of where we are today.
2: I wrote the book, which was 30 years ago. I'm very happy that it survived this long and that it's still in print. Always wanted them to do a film about it. So I'm very pleased that this tries to get at the, the whole backstory of this.
1: Anything we haven't discussed that you think we should?
2: One of the ways we justify bringing industrialization and modernization no matter what the cost is that we like to dehumanize the people that are going to not benefit who are going to suffer from it it's been that same way for you know centuries in this country i mean native americans black people are all sort of dehumanized in order to justify their exploitation that's one of the really important things because it's a very clear Line in the case of the Hatfields-McCoys, of this conflict and violence and then the national justification for it. It's explicit in the press and everywhere else that, you know, these people need to be civilized. And that civilization really involves exploitation, and that's the justification for it. So I think that's a lesson we really need to think about from this feud. (laughs) ¶¶
1: I did get a chance to watch the premiere episode, and it's very interesting. It's, as you might you expect- You got a preview? I got a preview. Lucky when you're you the press, you get a preview. Watched it at home on my firetap, as a matter of fact. <laughs> and it's kind of, as you might expect, American Experience as a Ken Burns-type presentation. Professor Waller did say, though, after she listened to what we just listened to, that she made a slight- glitch because there's so many Hatfields Too in the names that she talked remember. about yes. that in the referral about the election day fight, which is very critical to this thing, Ellison Hatfield is not Devil Lance's son, he was his
0: brother all right well great story very interesting everybody set your DVRs for September 10th to watch that keeping with our history theme but bringing us back to Connecticut this week I talked to the keeper of all of our state's history Walter Woodward an associate professor of history at UConn Hartford Woodward was named state historian 15 years ago in 2004 we talked about some of his favorite parts of Connecticut's history what has made Connecticut's people who we are and his own fascinating personal history They're kind of a vital event or a vital period that really shaped what Connecticut looks like today?
3: Connecticut began in the 1630s, so we almost have 400 years behind us, which in North American terms, that's a long time. Over that time, Connecticut has morphed several times into something else. So this original period when Connecticut did secure a virtual independence, 100 years before the American Revolution, that was very important and formative for the state. What the Royal Charter of 1662 meant is that when the American Revolution happened, Connecticut was one of the only colonies now states that didn't go through a great big turnover in government. We were already independent. We didn't even create a new constitution as most of the other colonies did. And Connecticut ruled under that charter till 1818. That's one of the ways we became one of our nicknames, the land of steady habits. We have this independence that sets us apart from most of the other American colonies at the time of the revolution. So. We kind of lead that patriotic charge in a lot of ways when the revolution happens. After the revolution is over, Connecticut actually presented itself to this new country trying to get its footing with a lot of instability. As this model of stability, we've been running our own government for 125 years. Use us as your model. Worked great for a while. If you were one of the old guard in Connecticut. But by the second decade of the 19th century, the people who weren't in the in crowd had had enough. They slowly but surely dismantled what we called the standing order, the traditional Connecticut elites. And all the time this political ferment is going on, people are leaving Connecticut by the droves. The population has grown. They've run out of land to give people. The land they have has been farmed out. There is an ecological crisis going on, not global warming as we're experiencing today, but a period called the Little Ice Age. Many, many people, as they are now, felt that they were being overtaxed, they couldn't support themselves, and they were leaving Connecticut. And Connecticut was in a true economic and an identity crisis. The Industrial Revolution began Right about the time people are leaving because agriculture is no longer productive, small entrepreneurs are coming up with inventions and improvements in technology. They're damming these rivers and streams. They're putting up their little company here, their little company there. Eli Whitney does interchangeable parts. And they have a technological revolution. Which led to immigration from people all over the world, and especially in the late 19th century, Connecticut, which had been this Anglo-Saxon Protestant place for a long, long time, found itself in the 19th century morphing into a polyglot, diverse community of peoples and voices, and a lot of those old Yankees did not know what to do about it. So. Another period of change. The joy of studying Connecticut history and being the state historian is that you get to see how these changes that transformed America worked on the ground in the place where you live with all the particular quirks, particular changes that still have an impact on how Connecticut runs and works today.
0: One thing that's very interesting to me and that has a lot has been made of it lately is that a lot of people in Connecticut don't like Connecticut and they complain. Every comment on the current is we all are going to leave and all of that. So it's really interesting that you talked about this happening back then and or maybe we're on the cusp of you know, some I, kind of revolution. I really <laughs>
3: see, some people say history repeats itself, but most historians know or believe that's not true. What we really think is that history rhymes. There are periods where Things seem similar, but they're not exactly the same. They have their own uniqueness to them. This is a period that very much rhymes with the early 19th century. And Connecticut right now is searching for whatever that water power technological revolutions going to be. Many people are rolling the dice on bioscience and mm-hmm. biotechnology. Fingers crossed we have reason to be hopeful that this really is going to be that way forward. But right now, as it was in the early 19th century, it's a time of change and a time of uncertainty for everybody. And for a lot of people, It's a time of kind of underlying anger. We see that all through American society.
0: You talked about Connecticut kind of having an identity crisis. There's so many different pockets of Connecticut. But one very basic thing is what Connecticut people are called. So oh you my. recently talked to my friend and fellow UConn alum, Kevin Velturo at the Hartford Current. There was a tweet about this government style manual that said the official name for someone who lives in Connecticut is a Connecticut which I had never even heard before. I've heard nutmegger, Connecticutian, I think. What do you make of that? And what's your preferred nomenclature?
3: You know, I do have a preference. And when I became the state historian, I got my PhD at UConn and I went off and taught at a wonderful liberal arts college in Pennsylvania, Dickinson College, then came back as a state historian. When I got that job, you know, suddenly what people in Connecticut called themselves mattered. I was asked, what do kinetic cutters do? And I thought, ah, oh, sounds like a hairstyle. You know, I'm going to my kinetic cutter. But... When I started this job in 2004, Chris Collier, who is the state historian who preceded me and did a wonderful job for a long time, he was adamant that that is what we are. We are Connecticutters. I thought there's got to be something better. Nutmeggers. Nutmeggers, okay, but there are people who are really offended that Connecticut would name itself the Nutmeg State because of the sort of unsavory associations Mm. with it. I looked at what other states did. I ultimately adopted, independently with my friend Elizabeth Norman at Connecticut Explored, who did the same thing, I looked at places like Nebraska and Iowa and Kansas, and I saw that they called themselves Nebraskans and Kansans and Iowans, and I thought, well, we are Connecticutans.
0: Makes total sense to me. It
3: made total sense to me, and I've been using it for about 14 years. And it's really nice to see that this is getting purchased now. It's been a long time. This is from the true confessions department. Early on in this job, after I had my Connecticut crisis, I sort of sat as my goal. It's like, if there is one thing, only one thing I would like to do while I'm state historian. If I can't accomplish anything else, please, (laughs) please, oh muses of Connecticut, help me change our nickname to Connecticut. So I like it. Fingers crossed. All
0: right. This might be the thing. We're getting it out there. There's a lot more we could talk about with Connecticut's history, but I want to talk a little about your history because I think it's very interesting. You were a singer.
3: I began my career as a teenager, I was a folk singer. As an undergraduate, I was an English major. And I was writing folk songs. I was going to be Bob Dylan. At the Newport Folk Festival in 1965, I think it was, Bob Dylan came out with an electric guitar and shattered my world. At the same time, a guy named Glenn Campbell came out with an acoustic song called Gentle on My Mind that sounded just like a folk song, but it went to the top of the country charts Mm -hmm. and crossed over. And I said, I can do that. I'm going to be a country singer, songwriter. So I started writing country music. By the time I graduated from the University of Florida, I had written a hit country song, and I went to Nashville. And luckily, I wrote another one and got involved in the music business there. Went on to do advertising music some movie music I had a I had Care a Care wonder- Bears
0: movie I read
3: oh God. <laughs> this is so good you're out of that cohort I wrote songs for the first Care Bears movie
0: that's awesome
3: and one of the wonderful moments in my academic teaching career was when I went into my first class at Dickinson College and I was introducing myself to the students and You know, I told them I'd come to UConn, I'd written this uh, dissertation, I was working on this book, and they're, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I said, and I was a country songwriter, yeah, 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 yeah. And I wrote songs for the Care Bears movie. And their <laughs> eyes just went biggest plates because all of them
0: It was were, their era. Yeah, it yeah. was their
3: era. So I became a class hero in one sense.
0: Forget all your other important. That's absolutely work.
3: right. Nothing else mattered.
0: So how did you become a historian?
3: I always loved history. When I was in the advertising business, I would try to find ways to sneak history into campaign. I once did a commercial for a recycled brand brand. brand of paper products. So I sold the client on doing a campaign of the great trees of America. So I went around the country with these treaty oaks and Washington oaks. And I loved history. I loved advertising. And I had a remarkable... Advertising was good to me in many ways. But at some point, I said, I just don't want to end up being the guy whose tombstone says I sold more tires than (laughs) the other guy. And since I loved history... And since advertising had made it possible, I was able to stop work and come to Yukon and get a PhD. It was a very dramatic midlife change for me, but I haven't regretted it for a minute. I went from a job I loved to a job I love more. <music>
0: So, Ken, with Tom out this week, I asked Professor Woodward if he would take us to Tom's History Corner by sharing his favorite Yukon history story.
3: My favorite story is the actual founding of the school. On September 28th of 1881, thanks to the generosity of Charles and Chuck and Augie.
0: <laughs> As we have named yeah, them.
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Chuck and Augie Stores. I'm sorry, that's disrespectful. Charles and Augusta yeah, Stores. Yeah, those
0: are our, uh, our modern nicknames, right? That's right.
3: <laughs> and, you know, and it's kind of nice that we can remember them familiarly yes, like that. Yes. But for purposes of this story, they will be what they were when they were the benefactors. They were Charles and Augusta Stores who donated land and a building that was a former orphanage to the institution that became the Connecticut Agricultural School. In 12 years later, it became, after a competition with Yale, it became the state's land-grant college. And from that little seed that was planted on September 28th in 1881 has grown this magnificent university.
0: Absolutely. Beautiful.
3: What better story than that, right?
0: Right. Thanks so much to Professor Woodward for that. It was really fun talking to him. We talked for a very long time and could have stayed. He was awesome. He
1: tells good stories. He
0: does. He's really good. And you can find the podcast he does in partnership with Connecticut Explored Magazine, which is called Grading the Nutmeg on any podcast app or at gradingthenutmeg.libsyn.com. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N. That's it, Ken. We've come to the end.
1: Where can we find you, though?
0: You can find me here at Yukon Three Sixty. Which, if you've loved or missed our friend Tom Breen, you can give us some reviews, ratings, or please subscribe. I am on Twitter at Julie Bartuka. This podcast is on Twitter at Yukon Podcast, and Ken is not on Twitter. Where no, you can.
1: But I am ongoing on UConn today at today.uconn.edu. There's lots of stuff that we've been working on during the break of the summer that's now coming forth now that the school year is, is there. And the UConn 360 podcast on WHUS has returned on Fridays.
0: Excellent. If you just can't get enough. All right. Until next fortnight.